All right, our series is ready, and it's taking a decided look at some difficult situations in life that we might be going through that aren't a lot of fun. And if you're going through that, it's not a lot of fun. If, even if you're not, maybe you will be because that's just the way life is. Life is full of lots of difficult realities. Some of them come our way through no fault of our own. Some of them we kind of run into them on our own, but either way, we're in a mess. Anybody relate with that? Difficult realities are just part of life. The readiness part comes with this. All right, whatever the situation is, what does God have to say about it? In that, is there any encouragement? Is there any direction? Is there any wisdom? Is there a way to get out of it? Is there a way where we would have never had to have gone through it in the first place, that would have been good to know. So we're looking at what does he have to say about these specific situations, and then the readiness part is just that. If what God has to say about it is your possession, you have it, you know it, it's yours, that makes you as ready as you could possibly be to go through whatever it is that you're going to go through. The definition of ready is a suitable state. Might still have to walk through it, but in a suitable state. So today is ready when sickness comes to stay. I'm 44. Let's say I go to the doctor for a checkup next week. If I go next week for a checkup, that will be my second checkup in 20 years. I'm on the decade plan. Anybody with me on that, guys? I'll go when I'm 30, when I'm 40, and when I just can't take the pain. But someone's going to have to drive me, right? Sort of the plane. And I go, and the news isn't good. Hey, something doesn't look right. We need more tests. And I find out you're sick. You're, you're way sicker than you ever thought you were. We get these envelopes in the mail sometimes. Someone in the family will go to the hospital, and if there, were, if there were tests done, then the results of the test come to your house. But sometimes those pieces of paper are pink. You can see it through the envelope because they want you to pay attention and not throw it away. Familiar with those envelopes? And you pour your coffee, however you do that, and you open that up, and you look at it, and you read through it, and it's like, hey, this... It's not good. That's reality. I mean, some of you are living that now. An old friend of mine. is ready, and it's taking a decided look at some difficult situations in life that we might be going through that aren't a lot of fun. And if you're going through that, it's not a lot of fun. If, even if you're not, maybe you will be because that's just the way life is. Life is full of lots of difficult realities. Some of them come our way through no fault of our own. Some of them we kind of run into them on our own, but either way we're in a mess. 
Anybody relate with that? Difficult realities are just part of life. The readiness part comes with this. All right, whatever the situation is, what does God have to say about it? In that, is there any encouragement? Is there any direction? Is there any wisdom? Is there a way to get out of it? Is there a way where we would have never had to to have gone through it in the first place? That would have been good to know. So we're looking at what does he have to say about these specific situations? And then the readiness part is just that. If what God has to say about it is your possession, you have it, you know it, it's yours, that makes you as ready as you could possibly be to go through whatever it is that you're going to go through. The definition of ready is a suitable state. Might still have to walk through it, but in a suitable state. So today is ready when sickness comes to stay. I'm 44. Let's say I go to the doctor for a checkup next week. If I go next week for a checkup, that will be my second checkup in 20 years. I'm on the decade plan. Anybody with me on that, guys? I'll go when I'm 30, when I'm 40, and when I just can't take the pain. But someone's going to have to drive me, right? Sort of the plane. And I go, and the news isn't good. Hey, something doesn't look right. We need more tests. And I find out you're sick. You're, you're way sicker than you ever thought you were. We get these envelopes in the mail sometimes. Someone in the family will go to the hospital, and if there, if there were tests done, then the results of the test come to your house. But sometimes those pieces of paper are pink. You can see it through the envelope because they want you to pay attention and not throw it away. Familiar with those envelopes? And you pour your coffee, however you do that, and you open that up, and you look at it, and you read through it, and it's like, hey, this... It's not good. That's reality. I mean, some of you are living that now. An old friend of mine, I spent a lot of time with him here, actually. Maybe a guy that you would say, yeah, that's my friend too, Sam Steffen. Playing guitar at Christmas time with his family, doing whatever he does, goes in the beginning of this year. Hey, I've got this thing that's bothering me. Maybe you could just clear it up. Can we get this behind us real quick? And they take a look and you're like, there's no way this is going away fast because you are really, really sick. And he remains that way to this day. I really wanted to hear from Sam today. That was my hope when I knew this one was coming. Here's why. Because when someone is in the middle of it, and they've sorted some of these things out for themselves, they've looked in, okay, what does God have to say? In, and they're act. So they have what God has said and they're hanging on to it and they're living it. When they say it, it has weight, doesn't it? It's different if I've not been through it and you are and I'm up here kind of pulling these things out and I'm handing them to you and you're going, yeah, right. You've not walked a single step on the path that I am on. What do you know? And there's some truth to that. I really wanted that legitimacy Because he's sorted it out, and he's clinging to the very things that we're talking about today. But the treatments come about every two weeks. The chemo treatments, 
depending on how the schedule goes, depending on how he's feeling. And then the days in between can be really rough. Here's a post that his wife put up. This was maybe three or four days after a chemo treatment. My man Sam and his dog. Sam's body has figured out that it has been poisoned. This is a steep climb. So it was, it was hard to ask. You don't know how the days are going to go. So I asked this, would it be okay if I shared your post? They've documented their journey along the way, and I got a big thumbs up. Like, you can absolutely share what we have said. So I'm going to do some of that today. But it's reality. Some of you are in it right now, and you know what it is when sickness has come. You didn't see it coming, and it has stayed. Those of us who don't, maybe it's just not yet. Either way, what does God have to say? Is there any encouragement in Christ? That was the question that I asked. I didn't look at this and flip to the back and sickness and try to fit. My question simply was this. If I'm in Christ and sickness comes, is there any, what does God have for me? Is there any encouragement in Christ? Because he says that there is. God says that there is. It's, it's in the book of, there's a letter to some people there's, some letter, there's a letter to Christians in the Bible. It's called Philippians. And in it, God says, if there be any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from God's love, if there's any fellowship with his spirit, and he's not asking because he's wondering, well, are these things maybe true? No, he's, it's rhetorical. They are true. There is encouragement. There is comfort. There is fellowship. And those things are supposed to change you, rearrange you to make you ready no matter what comes your way good situations or bad. So I'll take him at his word. What are they? If he says they're there and there's encouragement in Christ and I'm sitting there and sickness has come to stay, what do I have? Because I, I think I know how my spirit would be. And I think I would be angry. I'm relatively young. I've got four kids. I've got a wife. We've got things to do. I have a plan. Who has a plan? You're working your plan. And that plan's going to take 80 plus, right? You've got it all mapped out. And so you, who, who thinks they're owed their 80? He owes it to you. It's kind of the way, listen, I'll be honest with you. It's kind of what I think. I think he owes it to me. I'm living life for him. And then if that comes in, that takes, so I can, I can already sort of sense the bitterness that would be there, the bitterness that would be there. But I also know what he says about himself, and so I have to put those two together, and this is some of what I found. One, if I'm there, and I didn't see it coming, and sickness just took me right off my feet, I would know that I wouldn't be alone. If sickness has come to stay, and you are in Christ you're not alone. And what I mean by that is this. The God you're praying to knows what it is to suffer. And I promise if sickness has come to stay, Christian or not, whether you care or not, if sickness comes, you're praying. At least for a while, you're praying. Oh God, do, I don't want this. Will you take this away? What you need to know in that spot, in that bed or in that chair is that the God you're praying to, he knows what it is to suffer. He's been there. When God came to the planet in the person of Christ, 
He set aside all privilege. You can read about that in Philippians as well. He set us, he, everything aside, and he came in low. Did God have to come in low? He didn't have to, but he did. So if you read about how he came in, he came in born of a virgin. He came in born in a cave. He came in born on the wrong side of town. His parents were rich. He had no privilege. Think about this verse. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't have privilege. He laid it all aside to come. So he understands difficulty. Fully God and yet fully human. So he understands the limitations of all that. He's felt those things. He's kind of tried to, he's had to fight through them on a human level. Maybe the high point of his existence on the planet, from a human perspective, not the fully God part, but the fully human part, would maybe be that day, if you're familiar with the story, where he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. The cross is coming. It's out there. It's a week away or so. And he knows it's coming, but he has that moment where he rides in and people lay palm branches down. They think he's really great that day and they lay palm branches down and they say, Hosanna, which is a, it's a celebratory term, kind of a term of endearment. That's maybe the high water day. Donkey, palm branches, Hosanna. Sound like a good day? Other than that, it's the grind. Maybe the best thing about what he knows, and I'm praying to him, and I know he knows it, and I have to know he knows it because he, he has something that I need. He knows what it is to be on death's door. He knows what it is to stare down death, and it's not going to move, and have that put panic into his own soul. He's been there. No one knows more about death than Christ. No one. He's walked up to it. He's walked through it. He's been there. And he knows what it is to fear it, to not want it. And you can read about it. I've talked about this part in Scripture often, seems like, when I'm up here. And I'm not sure why, but it's that spot where he's in the garden. And what is coming? The cross. And what does he say? He's fully God, but fully human. So he understands it, and he does not want to face it. And he's saying, if you'll just take it away. That has to be the prayer. That has to be the, if I'm laying in bed or the chair, and I can't shake it, that's my prayer. Take it. You have to take it. We have a God who knows what it is to be right there. When I'm going through something tough, big or little, the people I want to hear from are the people who've been through it. Anything else is just kind of chatter. So I'm not going to lighten it a little bit. If I'm a coach, we take a loss that we should not have lost and I'm rolling it through. You know who I want to hear from in that moment? Some coach who's been there. Hey, it's all right. I've been there too, and this is how it went for us, and this is how it will go, and you can still do this. That's encouraging to me. Anything else is just, eh, you don't know. If my kid gets wrapped up in trouble, I want to hear from parents who, 
who have kids who have been there. And they know what it's like to walk through that. Like, hey, this is how it was for us. This is the deal. And it's going to be okay. This is how, it, that's, that's encouraging to me. Everything else, noise. That's who we have in Christ, in that spot, staring, staring down what's coming with maybe fear or panic in our heart about death. He's like, hey, I've been there. I've walked down that path and I've been through that door. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is a man familiar with sorrows. I realize this passage is about temptation. The rest of it says, but one who in every respect has been tempted the way we are. So he just knows what it is to be fully human. He does. And this has to do with temptation, and he didn't face, we don't face anything he didn't. But additionally, it's true. Like, he knows what life is like, limited by flesh and blood on a planet gone bad. He's felt it. He's fought it. He's walked through it. He's been there. In that way, if sickness comes to stay, you're not alone. He's walked it. Two, I'm not alone, and he can get me out of it. I mean, that's what he said. He recorded stories about it. Sometimes, if I'm in Christ, if I'm following him, I love him, I'm his, he can actually come down, and he can make the sickness go away. Sometimes he restores us to health. And the only reason I can say it is because he wrote down stories where he did it so we would know. 2 Kings chapter 20. It's a story about a king named Hezekiah. He was a pretty decent king. God allowed 40 kings to be over his people in the Old Testament. Of the 40, do you know how many were good? Five. Low percentage. He's one of the five. Right before the passage that we're going to read, this is what's going on with the king. He's leading, he's ruling, he's reigning, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing underneath God, and an outside king sends a letter. Dear King Hezekiah, this is what I'm going to do to you. And he writes down for him so he can read it over and over and over again, because that's not good for your heart. Everything I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to rip the kingdom from your hands, and this is all that I'm going to do to you, and oh, by the way, you can't stop me. And you know what? He couldn't. There isn't anything about what that king was writing that he could stop. And so filled with fear, he takes that letter, takes it to the temple, and he rolls it out in front of God, and he basically says, I can't, but you can. This guy's going to do everything to me that he said he was going to do, and I can't stop him unless you step in. And God says, all right, I will. I will save this city for the sake of my great name and, the, and my servant David. I'll deal with it. And that night, if I'm remembering it correctly, a single angel goes into the enemy camp and undoes, puts an end to 185,000 soldiers. Before, when he's in the temple, God says, not a single arrow will be fired. And there wasn't. I like his trust. He knows he, he, knows he can't. And he goes to the only thing he has and the only person he has that can. Right after that, he gets sick. It doesn't seem right. It seems like 
When you're, if I'm doing that, I'm expecting something good. God is going to do this, but here's, here's what happens on the heels. That's 19, this is 20. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face towards the wall and he prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart. I'm in the top five. He wouldn't have known he was in top five, but that's his argument. And I've done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone into the middle court, so he wasn't very far away from the king's quarters, that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David and your father, I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears, and surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. That's a great story. If I'm there and sickness has come to stay, I'm spending a lot of time in 2 Kings. Why do we have that story? God wants us to know that he does do that. If I have that story, I read that and that gives me hope. You need hope when sickness has come to stay. You need something and you have that because the God you're praying to he knows what it is to suffer, but he also knows how to undo it all, and he can, and sometimes he did, and maybe he will again. So pray. If sickness has come to stay, pray that he would undo it all. Sam again. On April 10th, they sent him home to die. He just didn't. He just started feeling better. He had an appetite, started eating. And they said, there isn't anything we can do. His wife wrote it this way, and she's pretty good with words. She said, well, it's been four weeks since Sam came home and crawled into his chair and readied himself to die. Dot, dot, dot. He's still there, but he's eating pie. He just didn't die. So on May 4th, they go back for a reevaluation. This is what he writes on May 4th. As we drive to our appointment, my heart is in a good spot today. My flesh feels frail, but I can hand that over with grace and the prayer support of everyone carrying me. I opened to the story of King Hezekiah this morning. The page had been folded, and that's where it opened. Now listen to this. I don't put my trust in where I opened. I love that. Thank you. There's no hocus pocus. It's no like, what's going to be today? What's going to be tomorrow? Don't do it that way. He said, I trust in God who wrote it and revealed it. I trust in God who is a father who wrote it and revealed it. Not only is a father, he's a good father, and I trust that. Not only is he a father and a good father, he's my father, and that's what I trust. Not this. I don't put my trust in where I open, but in my good father. He says the city in the precious chapter, he says of the city in this precious chapter, would this not be a precious chapter if sickness had come to stay to you? 
I will defend this city and save it for my sake and the sake of David, my servant. If he gives me 15 more years, I will continue to praise him and share in this ministry of reconciliation he calls us to. If he chooses otherwise, I am confident his purposes are good. There is no bad news. This is my reality today. May my flesh catch up with my heart. I like the last part too because at least he admits it. He can read it and be excited about it, but at the same time, there's that doubt, and it just rides right along in the car with him. He wants to believe it. This was the post four days later. It's just a photo, and she said, four weeks ago today, Sam signed himself. I signed Sam into hospice. Today, Sam signed himself out. This is our, this is our living room. We'd made room for the bed, the commode, the IV pole, and the feeding pump. And he just signed the paper and said, you can take it away. I am not here saying that, well, we got 15 more years because he opened ahead. I'm not saying it. All I'm saying is that happened. That's all I'm saying. That happened. And I don't know, maybe it's 15 more days from, I don't know, but there's a little more. And I promise you, who would he say did that? He's just going to roll it back to one person. God did that. So pray. And sickness comes to stay. I mean, God revealed he can, and he did, and he might again. For you. So pray. And while you do, I'm going to take something else from that chapter that I didn't expect to find, but I did find, and I think it might be one of the finest verses on getting ready when sickness comes to stay, and that is, while you pray, set your house in order. That's the first thing God told Hezekiah. Hey, you're going to die, set your house in order. So let's just take it for that without reading the rest of it. Is your house in order? Let's say sickness comes. And it's not going away. Is your house in order? I talked to a widow, two now, one last week, one today after first service, who their husbands did all things financial. They put all the stuff together. So they, they were the keeper of all that information. Both as they entered into sickness and sickness that would eventually take their life, they wrote it all down. They made arrangements. One made arrangements for someone who is capable and willing to take on all the financial bill paying and all that kind of stuff so his wife didn't have to. And eventually he died and she went on and nothing changed. Do that. On a very practical, set your house in order. Does anybody know what's going on with your family financially? Or do you have all that info? A few weeks ago, I was up here, I said, Leave no trails. We're all tired of your trails. We can see where, you, we see where you've been. On this one, leave trails. Bring people into that. Does anybody know what's going on? And if they don't, like write it all down. Call this for this. Call that for that. Do that. Because if you're gone, what are we going to do? That is not a house in order. Who knows what's going on other than you? Don't leave giant debt. Oh, hey, sorry about that. I had this big project and I was going to knock it out with this and this and then this was going to take care of this and like, great, I'm glad you had it all planned out. It didn't happen. Set your house in order now. Don't leave a mess. Clean it up. 
Clean it up. Clean it up with people. Who is going to read that you are no longer here and say, good? Fix it. Something went bad. There's a, there's a, a root of bitterness that popped up. It's not getting any better. It's unsolved. Fix that. That's setting your house in order. Matthew 7, maybe. If you are on your way to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, go back to your brother and fix it and then come because you're not in a state suitable to be at the altar if you've got all this stuff going on out here. So fix it. If sickness has come to stay and death is the result, you're on your way to the altar. And you're not ready until you fix it. Fix it. End it. Forgive. Bury it. Say it. Say what you need to say to the people you love the most. Put your house in order. There are things that I need my dad to know. There are things that my dad needs to hear me say to him. My mom needs to hear me say certain things to her. They're in my heart. I know what they are. They have to be said. I have some very, very, very important things for my kids to know. Say them. They must be said. Say them. My wife needs to hear from me certain things. They're in my heart. Say them. Set your house in order while you pray that God's going to take it away. Prepare for the fact that he won't. Put your house in order. Three, as, as much as we can read the stories of 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah, God will take it away. We also have to acknowledge that right beside it, there's revelation like 2 Corinthians 12, where God says, I'm not taking it away. Sometimes I do, and sometimes I will not, and I will let you suffer. You can't just take the parts you like. Who would like to just take the parts you like? We all would. But he puts both. Both are true of him. Both are true of the God you're praying to. Some, can he do it? Yes. Will he? Not always. The second story is about a guy named Paul. And Paul is actually writing about himself. And he's writing about the incredible revelation that God let him in on. He wants to tell everybody, he wants to tell everyone how awesome he is. Like, God picked him to see this. And you'll hear it as he writes. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. There's just a lot about that I don't understand. I mean, what's the third heaven? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Why do we call heaven paradise? Because God used those kind of words to describe it. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. Who's, who's he writing about? He's writing about himself. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So God allowed him to see things, but he wasn't allowing him to say, to tell all of it. 
On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on, behalf, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Like, he wants to tell people so bad. I think part of it was, that if we understand historically, I mean, Paul was kind of a shorter, balder, grumpier guy. And he'd roll into town, and he, he was always criticized. Everyone was full of criticism. And it just eats at you after a while. And some of it just like, oh, yeah, well, I'm special. You know, like, this is what God showed me. What did he show you? So he wants to say it. But I guess God said that he couldn't. But he, cert- he feels a certain way about himself. Probably in those moments where the criticism's coming the most, he still knows, well, yeah, well, I'm special. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than what he sees in me or hears from me. But it doesn't end there. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And this is, that's a phrase that we might be familiar with. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So sometimes you're just not doing it. It's just going to be no. But that's not the end. So if that's you and you... You checked out on me when I was in the Hezekiah part because you're like, I prayed, the answer was no. All right, well, it's not over then. There's still the no part, but inside the no part, what do we have? It's not like God is done with you. Well, I didn't give you 15 more years, so see you later. It's not that. There's still something to do. And the something to do in the midst of it is suffer well. The idea here would be that even though it's all sliding over the hill and it's not going well and the sickness isn't going away, You could still, as you live that out, cause people to see, if they look at you, that God is good. That God has perfect remedies for those who are dying and those who will die, even though he's letting you die. Cause God to receive good attention even in the midst of all your stuff falling apart. And that's what he puts in there. If you get sick and it won't leave, people will look at your life. It's how it is. When we hear that, oh, he's sick and it's bad, everyone will look for a minute. When they look, what will they see?
Sam was right over there. He lives just right over there. Around a campfire the night before Easter. And he believes with all his heart this is the last campfire he'll ever sit around. I mean, the last time you build it, the last time it smells the way. I built a fire last night. It was a good one. You know, I had it all packed in there and it, was, it just it burned nice and hot straight up for a long time. It was just dry. It was good. I, love, I liked it. I could have just stayed there for a while. But then kids came around and they, I had to leave. <laughs> I love that. What if it's your last one? And that's what he thinks. So he's around his last one, and he's worried that he hasn't done enough. Like, around the last campfire, he's thinking about facing God, and he's pretty sure he's not ready. And he's panicked about it. Are you ready to face him? And he's not sure. He starts to think about Peter. Peter around a campfire, about the same time, Easter, Christ is going to the cross, and Peter around the campfire is absolutely blowing it. You guys know this story? Peter is known for denying Christ three times. That happened around a campfire, questioned by a teenage girl, and he's losing it. And he's upset with himself the next day. He's like, he's distraught. I have denied. I have. He hates himself, but it's, it's kind of odd. Sam, all these years after the fact, wants to look back and he wants to counsel Peter like, no, you're not seeing it right. Isn't that odd how sometimes we, because of the revelation we've been giving, like, no, you're, it's okay. Wants to counsel Peter by saying, listen, it was never going to be what you did around the fire. God was never, ever just going to look at you and what you did. He was always going to look at what Christ did for you. While you're losing it there, you're so distraught about all that you did or didn't do, Christ at that very time is fixing it on the cross. While you're losing it, Christ is making it go away. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become righteous. It was never, ever, ever going to be about did you do it? God saying, oh, mm, ah, nope, yep. It was always going to be about him looking at you through Christ. It was always going to be about what Christ had done, not you and what you did or didn't do. And then he realizes around the fire, hey, wait a second, I have that too. When he thinks about the one without Christ, he's like, he has fear. He admits it. He writes it. He has panic. But he's like, hey, wait a second. This is what he writes. I never had anything. If I did everything, it still wouldn't be enough. The only thing I really have is what Christ has done for me. And that is my prized possession. I'm bankrupt, and Jesus is all I have. And if he isn't enough, nothing else would have ever been right. It would have never been enough. I know this is simple gospel, but it is heart level for me at this time. And I share it because I think you want to know where I am and what I'm thinking. Sitting around his last fire, what is the only possession that he cherishes? What Christ has done for him. 
And as I read it, it made me think about my last campfire. I think that's what it's supposed to do. See, when you're suffering well and you're going through it, you're supposed to live in such a way that you can still see that God's remedies are perfect. So I look at that and I think around my last fire, that's the only possession I want. And if I don't have what Christ has done for me, then all that I have is nothing. And so I just sent him a simple text that said, thank you for helping me see that the only possession that means anything, the one that, that I cannot live without is what Christ has done for me. Because if I don't have that, I have nothing. Do you have that? I promise you at your last campfire, that's the only thing that what you will do whatever you can to have that. Because those same feelings of fear and panic and uncertainty and unknown, they will all be there because you don't know, but you can. And when you know that's there, you, you can literally see like panic and then peace. That's what I want around my last campfire. I mean, maybe some friends that tell the same stories. Do you guys have friends that tell the same stories? Kind of. And you, you've, how many times have you heard them? In plot. Do you, let, do you let them tell it again? Yeah, they're friends. So, I mean, you, you know how it's going to end. You've heard it like 29 times. It's okay, though, because they're friends. You love them. There, there would be one I would tell. I'm going to tell it here quickly, and then we'll move on. At the sake of maybe going over a few minutes. It's just my favorite story. Um, it feels weird telling it to you because as I get into it, I feel like I've probably already told it. Like, I've told it so many times, I'm that guy. I feel like you've probably heard it. But um, I, was at a, I was at the funeral of Francis Jameson. That's my wife's grandpa. And he was 67 died. We were at, at the graveside, and they were kind of going through the deal, and we're all there. It's cold. And Brandy, my wife, has a cousin. He was really young. This was several years ago. He's really young. And he was just fiddling around. He was always fiddling around. He was never paying attention. And he was, the, the whole thing's going on. He's messing with the flowers on the casket. He's pulling one off, and he's got one. He's kind of twiddling it around his fingers, doing whatever. Well, the 21-gun salute comes up. And so they pull up, and he's just, and bang! And it, he didn't know it. And it literally just, his, his knees buckled, and his flower flipped, and like, kind of slobber shot out of his mouth, and like, I mean, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And it's burned into my mind. <laughs> and I'm stuck. So I just, <laughs> I just put my head on my wife's back. <laughs> and I started to laugh. But I, but I made it sound like crying because I couldn't get out. <laughs> it was just... 
she's like, what is going on? <laughs> and this guy's name was D came over to him. <laughs> oh gosh. I just get I covered with sweat when I think about that. Oh. That was terrible. But it's so funny. And I'm going to tell that story around my last campfire. But I'm also going to tell who's ever there the only possession that gives me peace is what Christ has done for me. And I absolutely know that I have it. And that changes everything for me. And if you don't have it. You have nothing. You have nothing that means anything if you don't have that. Search your own heart. Like, sort it out. Do you have that? And if it's vague at all, ask. Trade everything for that. It will matter so much at that last campfire. It will, it will change everything. And then lastly, as I look at this, this one you can't ignore. There's more written about this one, this encouragement or wisdom or hope. There's more written about this one that is our possession in Christ than all the other ones I've talked about combined. And that is, this life is not all there is. Repeatedly, God reveals, you guys are so locked into your 80 year, you're so locked into this and what you got to do and all this temporary stuff. Over and over and over again, he says, if you can see it, it will fade away. If you can see it, it will end in death. If you can see it, it's all going to break apart. You've got to stop looking at what you can see and you got to start looking at what's beyond that. He's always saying, fix your eyes on what is to come. I made, I made, I'm, listen, I made things good. It's not that you're supposed to be this miserable mess down here. There, there are some joys. There are some, but that's going to be nothing compared to what's coming. So you've got to get your, stop being so locked into your 80 that you're going to get. Because you're going to die. But that can be the beginning of life together with me in a way that you can't even imagine and it's never going to end. And when that starts, no more sickness, no more pain, no more, no more nothing. Get your eyes on that. Man, he says that a bunch. Over and over and over. So I'll just read some passages. This, that would be an easy study. What does he say about where I should put my focus as it relates to earth and beyond? John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'm coming back to get you and I'm gonna take you to myself for where I am, there will you, there will you be also. 
And where do you get the idea that there's a house for you up there, that God has something for you, or there's a dwelling? Where do you get that idea? Passages like that. That there is something else there, and it's real and tangible. I mean, he just said, I'm house. So it's, it's not so disconnected from your brain that you can't grab a hold of it. It's real. And there's a place for you to be. 2 Corinthians 5. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. But we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord because we believe what he has prepared for us is really that good. This one has to do with better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's going to be so good that you'll, you'll easily make the trade. These things that he writes, he reveals. And we just read them, but we're still like, well, I got to do this. Now get your mind off of that, onto that. This one's First Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. What does it mean? What does asleep mean in this passage? Those who have passed away. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, but you have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring those with him who have fallen asleep. Christ 